Good evening, everyone. It's time for another bedtime story with Thompson. We're reading The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman. This is Chapter 8. War! War? War! During the preceding year, ten warriors of the Ogallala Band of the Western Sioux Nation, including the son of a chief called the Whirlwind, had been killed by the Snake, or Shoshone Indians. Now the Whirlwind was preparing for revenge. He called for a union of all the Sioux within 300 miles to punish the Shoshones, and upwards of 6,000 Indians were slowly creeping towards the meeting place, La Bonte's camp, or the Platte, on the Platte. There, some would begin their warlike ceremonies, then set out for the enemy country. Here's my chance, Quincy, I said. I came out here to study Indian life. Now, if you're with me, we can live in the midst of them. Join a village. Sleep in one of their teepees. See how they prepare for war. Let us be off to Labonte's camp. <clears throat> it did not happen just that way. One morning, a young Indian brought unhappy news to us at the fort. The horse, as this Indian was called, came to inform us that Henry's squaw lay dangerously ill in the Whirlwind's village a few days' journey away. Henry was anxious to see his squaw before she died and to provide for, her, for their children, whom he loved. We shall forget our plans to travel with Smoke's village to the rendezvous, I said. Instead, we shall go with you to the Whirlwind's people. But, monsieur, cried Henry, you have been ill for several weeks, and you are unable to walk without pain and effort. I cannot permit you to go with me. But I had made up my mind, and so had the rest of our party. On the 20th of June, we set out down the valley of Laramie Creek for the Whirlwind's village. Besides Delorier, Henry, Quincy, and myself, our traveling party, included a long-haired Canadian named Raymond, whom we had hired for reinforcement, and a trader named Reynal, who was traveling to the village as well. With Reynal was his squaw, Margot, whose 200 pounds sprawled in a travois basket, and her two nephews. The horse, who had brought Henry the news, and the horse's younger brother, the hailstorm. On the second day out, we camped on the bank of Laramie Creek under a huge, weather-beaten old cottonwood tree. We decided to stay here and wait for the whirlwind. His location and movements were uncertain, but he would surely have to pass by, pass by us on his way to Labonte's camp. Besides, our horses were almost worn out from the rough ground, and I, myself, was in no condition to continue traveling. Henry sent the horse on ahead to scout for the whirlwind's people and to deliver a message to his squaw. She and her relatives were to leave the camp, uh, to leave the rest, and push on as rapidly as possible to our camp. After several days of rest, good water, and an abundance of game to eat, my strength began to return, but I was growing increasingly disturbed by the Indians' delay and cursed their untrustworthiness. At last I announced, Tomorrow morning I'll start for the fort to see if there's any news about the other war parties. That night, the horse returned from the Whirlwind's village. The chief was fifty miles south of us, moving slowly, and would not arrive for at least a week. Henry's squaw was coming as fast as she could with her brothers, but she was dying and asking every moment for Henry. Henry's manly face became clouded and downcast. Monsieur Parkman, if you are willing, I will go in the morning to find her. Quincy offered to ride with him while I headed to the fort for news, so at sunrise the three of us left camp. At the fort, I was told that two large villages from Miniconju Sioux had come 300 miles from the Missouri River to join in the war. They were gathering at Richard's Fort, not too far from Fort Laramie. I decided to ride over there, and what I found amazed me. 
It seems that the Sioux had met up with a company of emigrants heading for California. These emigrants had discovered that they were too loaded down with supplies, especially with Missouri whiskey, so they decided to sell some to the people at the fort and drink the rest. Therefore, the sight that greeted me was one of squaws stretched on piles of buffalo robes, shabby Mexicans armed with bows and arrows, Indians, long-haired Canadian trappers, and American backwoodsmen displaying the well-beloved pistol and bowie knife, and all were drunk. The next morning, back at Fort Laramie, I was talking to a trader named McCluskey when I saw a strange Indian leaning against the side of the gate. He was a tall, strong man with heavy features. Who is he? I asked McCluskey. Why, that's the whirlwind, the feller what's made all this stir about the war, said McCluskey. That's always the way with the Sioux. They never stop cutting each other's throats. Instead of sitting in their lodges and making buffalo robes to trade with us in the winter, they go out looking for fights. If this war goes on, we'll have poor trading with them next season, I reckon. The traders had all agreed with McCluskey and set about trying to convince the whirlwind that it was also in his best interest that there be no war. After all, in a war, the Sioux would lose many horses and would not have time to hunt buffalo to trade with the white men. By now, the whirlwind had grown bored with all the preparations for war like a child grows bored of his favorite toy, so he agreed to give up the war. But to further my own studies, I still hoped to see the Indian War ceremonies. And since the whirlwind had already declared war to his Sioux nation, they were still going ahead with their plans to go on the warpath. Six large villages were bound for Labonte's camp to make preparations. The day after I returned to our camp on Laramie Creek, Quincy and Henry rode in. Henry had seen his squaw, who had stayed alive only long enough to speak with him, but on their way to our camp she had died. Her brothers had stayed behind to take care of the burial ceremonies while Quincy and Henry had returned to camp. Henry was grief-stricken, and it was some time before his spirits revived. A few days later, four young Indians, Henry's squaw's brothers, rode into our camp. They joined us for dinner, and we passed the pipe afterwards. I asked them where the whirlwind's village was. There, said Mato Tatanka, the youngest brother, pointing to the south. They will reach here in two days. Will they go to the war? Yes. So, happily for my purpose, the traders had not changed the whirlwind's mind after all. Now nothing would stop me from going to Labonte's camp to join in the ceremonies. On the third day, when the whirlwind's village did not arrive, we rode out to look for it. In place of the 800 Indians... Uh, in place of the 800 Indians we expected, we met one lone savage riding towards us on the prairie. He told us that the Indians had changed their plan and would not come for at least three more days. The Indians' fickleness bothered me, but I would have to wait. Four days later, a wild procession hurried in haste and disorder down the hill and over the plain below. Horses, mules, dogs, heavily burdened travois, mounted warriors, squaws walking amid the throng, and a host of children. Soon, as if by magic, 150 tall lodges sprang up along the stream. The lonely plain was transformed into a swarming camp. The whirlwind had arrived at last. But would he go to war? At length, the answer came. After all their preparations, the whirlwind and his warriors had decided not to go to the rendezvous at Labonte's camp. Instead, they intended to pass through the grim, lofty black hills and spend a few weeks hunting buffalo on the other side until they had killed enough to furnish them with a stock of provisions, the necessities of life. Fuel, food, clothing, hides for their lodges, strings for their bows, coverings for their saddles, glue, thread, ropes, and vessels to hold water. The buffalo supplied all these. And we're out of time. See you next time.
Good night.